everybody, this is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. It's our series on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans. And it's going to get really, really good now because we, we actually do have some good news coming up for you. St. Paul has been laying out all the bad news in great detail. The absolutely horrific predicament of humanity in sin and without God. But at the end of our last episode, we, we kind of ended off in chapter 3 starting with verse 9 and following. I just want to recap this for you a little bit. Uh, Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for I have already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Snakes. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So when when St. Paul is saying this here, uh, he's quoting uh, the Psalms. He's also quoting, uh, there's one quotation there from the book of Isaiah. And he's talking about what I call the anti-theology of the body. Our bodies and their members are supposed to praise God and glorify God and living according with his truth. But so often we sin in and through the body, just as we glorify God in and through the body. So Paul talks about throats like open graves, tongues that are lying, deceiving, lips, mouths, feet and eyes. And it's interesting, feet are swift to shed blood. It's very much a contrast to what uh, the scriptures say that those who bring good news, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. And this is such a contrast, the eyes, haughty eyes, um, envying eyes, lustful eyes. This is not what we want. Uh, we want the eye to be cu- to be pure because, as Jesus says, it is the lamp of the body. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And so he's going to go back to this in Romans chapter 6. But in Romans 6.13, he says, Do not yield your members, and by that he means the members of your body. Do not yield your members to sin as weapons of wickedness. But yield yourselves to God as men who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as weapons of righteousness. I really like that. I really like that. Our bodies can be, can be weaponized, that's, that's for sure. But they can be weapons of righteousness, weapons of the truth. And that's the way it ought to be. That's really the true theology of the body. So, again, the point of all this, he, he gives it in, cha- in a verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So this idea, again, you're, you're on trial, uh, you're the defendant, you're guilty as charged, and there's nothing you can say about it. There's no closing statement you can make in your own defense. Uh, in fact, there's no lawyer in the world, not even Johnny Cochran would defend you against these charges because we're all guilty of sin before Almighty God. And so how does God deal with this issue? Well, in verse 20, Paul writes, For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
We'll get into this a little bit more again, this whole concept of works of the law. I'm going to bookmark this for now because he's going to mention it again in a couple minutes. But this idea of justification, how are we made right before God? This is something that uh, Paul has said way, way back in chapter 1 in verse 16 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in verse 17, For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. This whole idea of salvation, righteousness, justification, it's all kind of the same thing. How do we get right with God? Salvation? Now, what's really intriguing here is when we look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, this is a very, very powerful uh, paragraph. Paragraph 1994. I think of the Lillehammer Olympics in 1994. All right. In paragraph 1994, it says, Justification is the most excellent work of God's love made manifest in Christ Jesus and granted by the Holy Spirit. It is the opinion of St. Augustine that the justification of the wicked is a greater work than the creation of heaven and earth Because heaven and earth will pass away, but the salvation and justification of the elect will never pass away. And he holds also that the justification of sinners surpasses the creation of the angels in justice, and that it bears witness to a greater mercy. That is a powerful, powerful paragraph in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1994 Focusing on the thought of St. Augustine, this idea that the best work of God's love. In other words, his greatest attribute is not the fact that he's omnipotent. It's not the fact that he's all-powerful. It's not the fact that he created the universe ex nihilo out of nothing, as impressive as that is. I mean, come on, this is unbelievable. But the greatest thing that God does and the greatest attribute that he has is forgiving our sins is making us righteous before God, taking away the punishment for sin. That's a greater act than the creation of the entire universe. And and that's why Jesus says in the gospel, what shall it profit a man or a woman that he should gain the whole world and yet lose his eternal soul? Why is that? Because even if you did gain the whole world somehow, the world is not eternal. It's not going to last forever, but your soul will. Your soul is immortal. It will live forever somewhere. And ultimately, there's one of two destinations, heaven or hell. In its present form, this world is passing away. Yes, there will be at the end of time a new heaven and a new earth, but this world is passing away. And this world is not enough, as the James Bond family crest says. Remember that movie, The World Is Not Enough? (laughs) It's true. The world is not enough. We need to shoot for eternity. And so this is why it's so important to be right with God. And and, and the, the work of, of priests and bishops and the confessional, that they can actually forgive sins in the place of Christ, that Jesus borrows their vocal cords to say, I absolve you of your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That is more powerful than the creation of the entire universe and all its complexity and beauty. That is a staggering thought. And St. Paul really points that out right here 
in Romans chapter 3. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Kale Clark. This is our study on Romans. Can you handle the truth? Okay, let's keep going now in Romans chapter 3. This is amazing. I, I, I just love this. Let's read this next section together, starting with verse 21, chapter 3, verse 21 of Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith and the uncircumcised through their faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, let's stop there and talk about it for just a moment. So when St. Paul says, but now, in verse 21. These are maybe the two most glorious words in the English language. But now, things have turned out. Now we are going to get the gospel. Now we are going to get the good news of salvation, which we can't render unto ourselves. It's impossible, but it is possible through Jesus Christ. And so now we're going to finally hear The good news of the gospel, the good news according to St. Paul, the gospel according to Paul, as it were. And you've been waiting a long time for this, and so have I. And and I think he really just needed to lay out the case for the bad news so that we can appreciate the gospel so much more. Now, the law is good, as Paul says, but the law itself can't save us. No one's justified through the law because no one's ever kept it perfectly. He says, through the law comes knowledge of sin, back in verse 20. And now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, now the law is still good. It still has a function. There's no question about it. The moral law, the Ten Commandments never go out of style. They're still valid in the New Covenant. Even the Catechism bases its structure, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, the section on how to live, Because really what the Catholic faith comes down to is faith and morals. What to believe, how to live. Faith and morals. So the section on how to live is based on the Ten Commandments. So the Catechism is kind of split into three sections. The Creed, the Apostles' Creed. What to believe. The Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, how to pray. And of course, the Our Father is is not just a a vocal prayer that we can recite that, that God gave to us. These are the very words of God and Jesus. But... 
It is also a model prayer. We can take that apart and use it as a template for prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Acts is the, is the acronym for that. But the Ten Commandments section is all about how to live. It's still valid today. We can't live that way without God's grace. So more, more on God's grace in, in just a second. And this is, this is the good news. And, and when he says in verse 22, there is no distinction. He's talking about the fact that Jews and Gentiles are basically on the same level as he's been showing. They all have a sin problem. The Jews do have the law. They have the advantage of knowing for sure what all, all the sins are and what the good life really is. But again, nobody's ever kept that perfectly. In fact, in verse 23, and this is, this is one that we Catholics have to do some explaining on, which we'll get into from an apologetic perspective. Paul writes, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right. Now, this, this is uh, clearly something that we get hit with a lot because non-Catholics will all, always say to us, how can you say that Mary is without sin? How, how can you say that? How can you believe in the immaculate conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, that from the very first moment of her existence, she was kept clear from all stain of original sin, and the church also holds that she never committed any actual sin in her life? How can you say that? Because St. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, clearly, he doesn't mean every single person who's ever lived on the face of the earth. That's not what it means. It's a representative statement that, that, that he makes. But he, he can't be talking about every single human person that's ever lived. There are other exceptions as well. There are children below the age of reason, uh, infants who have died by miscarriage, um, those who are challenged in some way and they never fully develop mentally, they, they are not guilty of sin. So it's not a blanket statement that means every single person who's ever lived, but this is a generality and certainly the, the case for most of us, yours truly included. So that, that is, is how you would respond to that uh, accusation or misunderstanding, if you will. All right. So let's, let's look at the next verse here in Romans 3, verse 24. Well, actually, let me go back for one second. At the end of verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Th this is a great definition of sin. What, what is the definition of sin? It is to miss the mark. It's to miss the mark. That's really what sin means, this word for sin that's used in the scripture. Think of, a, of something like archery, where there's a bullseye, there's a target, and if you remember the old Robin Hood movies like Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland starring in the old Hollywood production way back when in the early 20th century. And then, of course, in the 1990s, Kevin Costner came along and then Russell Crowe had his turn as Robin Hood more recently. Whichever one is your favorite, maybe none of them are. He's always going to hit the mark when it comes to archery, but, but we always miss the mark when it comes to the fact that we are sinners. And uh, there are times when we fall short. And this is really, really what it means. Nobody's ever lived this perfect life outside of those, you know, those examples that we mentioned. Of course, our Lord, you say he's cheating. He's the God man. He's got an advantage, maybe so. And then, of course, our lady preserved from all stain of original sin and not committing the actual sins later either. But we have, a, we have an issue. We have an issue. And so we need his grace. And in verse 24, 
That's what St. Paul says. They are justified by his grace as a gift. And this is something that we have to note, that both Catholics and Protestants, both Catholics and Protestants are saved by grace. By grace. But what does that really mean? We define grace in, in different ways. It, it's God's unmerited favor, for sure. Uh, any Protestant Christian will tell you that. It's a gift that we don't deserve. But it's also, we Catholics would say, it's also God's life. God gives us his life. And, and when we're in a state of grace, we're in communion with God. It's like the image that Jesus uses in John's gospel, the vine and the branches, that, that sap, that life giving sap, the grace of God is flowing through us. And we can be fruitful for the kingdom. We can't do that without God's grace. They're just purely human works uh, without it. And, and we'll, we'll get into a little bit more of, of differences and misunderstandings and misreadings of Romans, which really, again, this was such a key book and even a key chapter here in touching off the Protestant Revolution in 1517. But this idea that people have fallen short of the glory of God this glory of God is really what Christ wants to give back to us. Because some theologians say, even in the book of Genesis, when we look at the original sin, when Adam fell from grace, some say that Adam and Eve kind of wore almost garments of light, the glory of God, and, and that was taken away. Need to reclothe himself with the fruit of the loom underwear, if you will, the fig leaves. That doesn't really work. But our resurrected bodies will, will, at the end of time, will maybe, I think, get back that glory that was lost and um, heavenly garments, if you will. I, I, I'm really, really excited for that. And it's an intriguing uh, thought to, uh, to kind of register in. But this idea of the redemption, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. This word redemption was used for the freeing of slaves. How? Because very often in the ancient world, people fell into slavery because they owed a debt they could not pay. And Jesus gives a parable about this, the unmerciful servant who's forgiven this great debt that he couldn't pay by the king. And then he finds another guy, it is like millions of dollars, finds another friend of his who owes him 10 bucks and has him thrown into prison. <laughs> Well, the king wasn't too happy about that when he found out, because if we're going to receive forgiveness and redemption in our own lives, the condition for that is we have to offer that to others. We have to forgive one another as God has forgiven us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so you could, a wealthy friend, a relative, somebody could do you a solid and get you out of slavery by paying the ransom. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. And, and this is what God has done always in the past as well. Think about the exodus from Egypt. That's exactly what he did. He got them out of slavery and into freedom. And this is the glorious freedom of the children of God that he wants to give you and I as well. Well, we have run out of time for this episode, but it's so exciting now to get into the good news of the gospel in Romans. We'll have much more in the next episode, but right now, you know what time it is. It's time to open up the Faith Explained Q&A mailbag. Let's go for it. Okay, as we open up the Faith Explained mailbag here on Relevant Radio, I want to remind you that you can email me your question. I'll try to get it on the air. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, F-A-I-T-H at relevantradio.com. Dot com. And you can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E, Clark with an E. 
Today's question comes to me from Jessica Rose, who's listening on the app, on the Relevant Radio app, the greatest app in the world. It's the number one free Catholic app that's out there. So go download it now. And she's got a question for me on mortal sins. And Jessica writes, how is it best for us to learn what are mortal sins so that we live our best lives and are able to assist others to do so as well? Thank you, Jessica, for that question. It's really good. I really appreciate that. And that's what it's all about. It's about living the good life, if you will, and avoiding evil, avoiding what's what's bad and what will get us off track. And in the case of mortal sin, it'll get us way, way off course. And we're in a grave danger with these grave sins if we commit them. Now, I wish I could tell you, Jessica, that I have a list of here are the 18 mortal sins that you need to watch out for in the rest of you. You know, they're still serious, but... There's no such list, uh, but they are talked about in the scriptures, this concept of mortal sin uh, or deadly sin and sin that is not deadly. It's still bad, but not deadly. You can find this in the first letter of John. If a non-Catholic friend or even a Catholic friend asks, where is this in the Bible? First John chapter five, verses 16 and 17. John says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal. So this is a, an important distinction to make. So what is a mortal sin? Mortal sin, as its name implies, uh, the word mortal, deadly, like think of the French word more, which means death or the mortuary. It kills the life of God in the soul. It kills God's grace. It shuts off the tap, if you will. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church puts it this way in paragraph 1874. A mortal sin destroys in us the charity, and that really means love without which eternal beatitude is impossible. Unrepented, it brings eternal death. So this is absolutely crucial uh, that we avoid this. And if we fall into this, that we need to get this rectified right away. I like to um, use the analogy of marriage. And again, the analogy of marriage is, is all the way throughout scripture from Genesis all the way through Revelation. The Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve and ends with the marriage of Christ and his church in eternity. And when, when we commit mortal sins, it's like a divorce. It, it cuts off the relationship. Whereas venial sins, these, and again, that doesn't mean that they're not to be trifled with, but these lighter sins, if you will, they wound the relationship. So a venial sin is like having a fight with your spouse. There might be a cooling off period. Maybe you've done something reprehensible. She's mad at you. And, or he's mad at, uh, at his wife, whatever the case might be, they're, they're, it weakens the relationship. There's a chilling in the relationship. It's not what it ought to be. But hopefully, you know, we can kiss and make up and everything's fine. But a mortal sin cuts off the relationship. And that's why we the only way to really turn the tap back on, get the relationship back on track, is to go to confession. And in paragraph six, 1861, of the catechism, it says that it can be redeemed, these mortal sins, by repentance and God's forgiveness. So how do we know what's a mortal sin? Again, I don't have a full list for you, Jessica, but uh, there are three things that constitute a grave sin. Number one, it actually has to be a mortal sin. It has to be grave matter, deadly matter. And we'll talk about what some of these things might be in just a second. Number two, you have to commit this sin. It has to be grave matter. Actually, it has to be gravely sinful. And it has to be committed with full knowledge. You got to know that it's a mortal sin. And the third thing is full freedom. 
consent. You've got to give consent to it. And there's there's no, nobody forcing you at gunpoint to do this. You have freely chosen to do it. So all three things, as the Catechism says in paragraph 1857, you have to have all three things for a mortal sin to be present. Otherwise, it's it's a venial sin, we could say. Now, venial sin stole a problem. Uh, St. Augustine says, if your sins don't give you pause because of their gravity, <laughs> whether they're grave or not, may they give you pause because of their sheer number. Uh, a lion can eat you and, and just you know tear you apart in one bite. That's a mortal sin. But uh, if you're thrown into a pit with gnats and covered with them, they can. it's like death by a thousand cuts. These little bites will eventually do you in as well over time. So they, they do matter as well, even if they're not grave matter, as it were. So here's what the Catechism says about, uh, it, it does actually give some list of what, what some mortal sins are. Sacrilege, blasphemy. So this is paragraph 2120, paragraph 2148 for blasphemy. Perjury, that's a very serious sin. Uh, you know, in a court of law, you, you, your, your lying testimony condemns someone to... Um, jail or worse, maybe death, missing mass on Sunday or holy day of obligation. This is the one that modern people say, I can't believe that you actually, you guys actually believe this. Are you telling me I could go to hell for missing mass on Sunday? It's not like I've murdered anybody. Well, that's what the church says, because here's, here's how I like to explain it. The mass is heaven on earth. And I know, humanly speaking, maybe the choir doesn't exactly sound angelic. Maybe the sermon isn't exactly one as St. Paul would preach. But what's happening there? Christ is present in the Eucharist. He's really there. Heaven on earth. When we receive the Eucharist, which we have to be in a state of grace, uh, no unconfessed mortal sin on the soul to receive him, you can't get any closer to heaven without dying. It really is heaven on earth. So if you don't want to go to heaven on earth, why would God let you into heaven, heaven? if that makes any sense. So that, that's how I like to explain it to people. Some other grave sins, which should be fairly obvious, murder. <laughs> Catechism number 2268, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, is really the better translation of that commandment. This is an interesting one. In paragraph 2303, the Catechism talks about when when, when you actually desire to harm your neighbor. Maybe you haven't actually killed him, but you, you want to. You want to kill him in your heart. And this is what Jesus talks about. He really gets to the heart of the commandments because the Ten Commandments, basically any anytime you break one of the Ten Commandments, it's essentially a mortal sin. But Jesus gets to the heart. Now, the commandments are the outward activity. You can look at this as the shell of a peanut, but the nut is what's inside. And you and I are a little bit nuts all the time for sure. But he really gets to the inner attitudes that lead to the outward sin. So he says, lust leads to adultery. Hatred and anger leads to murder. It can. So this idea of desiring to harm your neighbor. Uh, and essentially any sexual sin outside of marriage, between a valid marriage between a man and a woman is a mortal sin. You can read about that in paragraph 2390. You can also look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And also Paul kind of gives another laundry list of uh, what we could say are pretty much mortal sins. In Galatians chapter 5, he calls it the works of the sinful nature in uh, verses 19 through 21. So I hope that that helps to, to clarify this a little bit, Jessica, but that's a great question. And you can send your question in to me as well if you're listening. The address by email is faith at relevantradio.com. Hit me up on Twitter at Kale Clark. 
I'll see you in the next episode of The Faith Explained right here on Relevant Radio. Share it with a friend through the Relevant Radio app.